Oh, not so. So we'll return to taking the mind as the path. And I'd like to make just some brief comments because we have, some, I think, very interesting material to look into after the session. Just this brief comment. Uh, a number of you have some, I think, quite solid background in the Galupa tradition or New Translation schools, and so you'll be very familiar with the kind of twofold division of Buddha nature. In Tibetan, Ranjing Nedik, Ranjing Nedik, the naturally abiding Buddha nature, which is always present, always present. Of course, that can be interpreted in different ways, but the one standard interpretation is it's that emptiness, emptiness of inherent nature of the mind, which is primordially the case, nothing to be added or subtracted, that's just the way it is. And it's because, it's because the mind is inherently empty that Buddhahood is possible. If our minds were inherently existent, it's perfectly obvious we have some sentient beings' minds, right? With mental afflictions. That, mean, that would mean that we are inherently sentient beings and inherently not Buddhas. So if there are Buddhas, they would have to be never have been like us, and we will never be like them. Because we're inherently, really, truly, intrinsically, by our own nature, sentient beings. It's only because the mind is not inherently existent that there's a possibility of our being sentient beings and eventually being Buddhas. Sentient being, by its definition, means not enlightened. That's how it's categorized. And so that's already present. And then we have, secondly, the the evolving or transforming. Evolving, it's a good word. Evolving, and it's a deliberate, conscious evolution or transformation towards enlightenment that the mind that is right now subject to mental afflictions, obscurations, really unwholesome activity, and so forth, can improve. It can be developed, refined, purified, develop those six perfections until they are all perfected and you become enlightened. And so then we see this is the path. We are transforming, growing along the path. One is already present, immutable, unchanging, primordial, and the other one is transforming. Here we are in an analogy of that. We're resting, just resting in awareness, which has always been luminous and cognizant. And when the Buddha referred to this bhavanga, this primordial consciousness, the not primordial consciousness, the substrate consciousness, he referred to it as babasacitta, the brightly shining mind, the clear light mind, which is by nature pure and luminous, but adventitiously becomes obscured. But you don't improve it. Probe it to its core, probe it to its ground, and that, of course, is Rikpa. And that's where we're seeking to rest, in that stillness. My little old symbol here, no big deal, just just an index finger. But that's the symbol of it, and we know so well that it's our closest approximation to resting in and being fully cognizant of our naturally abiding Buddha nature which when clearly revealed manifests itself as Rigpa, which is Dhammakaya. But we're observing the mind. We're not observing somebody else's mind, we're observing our own mind, and we see it's in a constant state of flux. But with diligent, intelligent, continuous practice, we see from month to month, year to year, decade to get decade, it's not the same. There's, a, there's improvement. Gradually mental victims subsiding, the mind get a bit saner, a bit more balanced, and so forth. Virtues, altruism, compassion, empath- empathetic joy, and so forth, coming forth, coming forth. So we see, you know, the mind's changing, we're in going in the right direction, right? And we, are, we can be cultivating that effortfully through lojong, through lamri meditation, through stage regeneration, completion, cultivating in a myriad ways to transform that mind, which is so evidently not a Buddhist mind, a Buddha's mind, 
into a Buddhist mind. And there's the, how do you say, the effortful developmental approach, which has enormous merits to it. And then we have this Dzogchen, effortless approach of simply resting in Rigpa and then just watching it happen by itself. So here we are. So to best approximation is we go, go right to the practice. Your best approximation, do really establish yourself. Find your home. Come to rest. Get comfortable. Stay home for a while. Don't go out bar hopping. <laughs> party, party, party. You know. Yeah. People like that woman there is hopeless. Always bar hopping one place to another. Party, party, party. Beata. Party, party goer. <laughs> Don't be like her. Big party girl. Big party girl. <laughs> terrible. I know. That's, that's why I'm letting everybody, including everybody in the podcast, know. Not like her. She's a party goer. I'm a party pooper. <laughs> Don't be like that. Stay home. Stay home. And watch the show. And sadly, the mind is natural state. Just watch the show. It turns out well. It has a happy ending. <laughs> Find a comfortable position. Let's have a silent session. That'd be good. Well, I think it's time to wrap up uh, this trying to unpack and make sense of this citation from the 100,000 verse Prashamanamita Sutra. And of course, lingering on that one, uh, Buddhist astronomy. The first moon landing was somebody reaching out and touching it. And the first sun landing was somebody reaching out and caressing the sun. It sounds so wildly implausible that one just kind of wonders, one just does not compute. It might, one is tempted just to move on and say, somebody has made that one up. It's hard not to just start laughing, especially the, the notion of caressing the sun. Uh, the Tibetans have a joke about Ladakis. They like to use, have Ladaki jokes. And they tell about the, the uh, press, press release from, from the Ladaki government saying that we're, we're now soon to launch uh, the first manned landing on the sun. And the journalist raised his hand and said, how are you going to do that? It's too hot. And then this very wise smile came over the representative of this, you know, sun landing. He said, we're going to land at night. <laughs> so that's, I like, I really like, I've been telling that joke for years. I enjoy it every single time. <laughs> And we laugh very rightly, because it's just so wonderfully silly. And is reaching out and caressing the sun any less silly? That's the real question. But this, you know, that Ladaki joke is not in the Prachapanamita Sutra. It's not in the Diga Nikaya. It's not in the writings of Kamachamanabhaja. It's not taken seriously by brilliant minds for 2,500 years, taking that literally, and not just Buddhist. So what do we do about that? Well, the first point, I think, and we'll just do a little bit of walk down history lane here, is that very notion, and I'm going to back this up with a bit of Buddhist cosmology, just to you know, give us some context, that'll come soon, is that 
we really feel, if, you're, if you've been raised in the West, or let alone West, raised in Singapore and gone through secular education, right through university, you know there's one story, we're very familiar with it, 13.8 billion years ago there was a big bang and everything else happened. And that's the one story. And if you're religious, then you have a lot of other stories. And if you're a fundamentalist religion, a religious person, then you'd basically just turn your back on science. And I did check, and it is truly 40% of the American public are creationists, believing in a six, literal interpretation of six-day creation. This is the United States, and they're about to vote somebody to become president. <laughs> wow. And more than two-thirds of regular churchgoers in the United States are creationists. More than two-thirds. So that's sobering, really. Because it looks like, you know, they, they walk into the room of science and they just hold their nose, close their eyes, and say, I'm having nothing to do with this. Because we know what God said. God is infallible. God is omniscient. You're people, you're mill mortals, Stephen Hawking and so forth. What do you know? God knows everything, and God told us exactly what happened. That's the end of the discussion, you know, and for many people. So there it is. So, but there's one, what, but the notion of there being one story, and there is pretty much, pretty much one story for modern science. It's one we're all educated in. If you've learned astronomy, physics, chemistry, right through college and so forth, it's one story. We all know that, right? But that wasn't always the one story. If we go back to the time of Copernicus, there was one story, and that's for all of Europe. And it's the Abrahamic story. It's the Genesis account. And it's accepted by, of course, Jews. It's accepted by Christians and the Muslims. These are all three Abrahamic religions. They all accept the book of Genesis. They all look like they really are worshiping the same God. Different nuances, different emphases, and so forth. And it's one story. So for really all of European history for the last 2,000 years, there's been one story. It's the Genesis account. It's the Abrahamic story. And we have the, the Muslim interpretation. We have the Christian, the Jewish. But it's one story. And since the time of the Greeks, going back to you know, Socrates, everybody east, starting from Turkey and going east, they're barbarians. They were a threat. They really were a threat, right? The Turks, the Persian Empire, and so forth. They were a threat. You don't go to learn from them. Be afraid from them, because they can take over. They're barbarians, and Greece was civilization. Rome was civilization. Outside of Rome, barbarians. Within the Roman Empire, okay, civilized or getting civilized because of the Romans. right? So one story. We Eurocentric people are very big on one story and just don't even consider other stories because they're heathen religions or they're just religious nonsense superstition and so forth. We're very big on one story. Remember what William James said about having thinking there's only one narrative, only one story. Well, the story starts this way. And that is after the six-day creation, which everything was done except one thing. Then, Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the woman came shortly after, and then God gave them their marching orders, be fruitful, multiply, and so forth, and the rest is history. But there it is. That's the story. So this is absolutely rooted in metaphysical realism, that a truly existent God created a truly existent universe, finished it, then created man out of dust, which is a very important element. And then he breathed prana. I mean, breath of life, what is that if not prana? So God, from a, from a supernatural, supernatural source, breathed prana into this dust-created image, like a clay statue. And, of course, it not only became living, but it became conscious. So with the prana, there had to be consciousness as well. So God breathed consciousness and prana into 
this graven image that he created. And then we have a human being, a living human being with an immortal soul, and created women, and then there we go. That's the story. That's the one story. And this was believed without question by all the founders of modern science. We start with the Copernicus, because modern astronomy begins with him. And he was a theologian, a churchman. He was employed by the church. And he formulated his heliocentric theory within the context of the Abrahamic story, just tweaking it a bit. You can't take everything literally. But he, that, didn't chapter, that didn't even challenge his faith. He just interpreted the Bible a little bit differently. He's still the same Christian he was. Leap forward to, to Kepler. Kepler was a theologian, trained as a theologian, remained a theologian. Leap forward, we have Galileo, trained as a monk, trained as a novice in a contemplative monastery, a devout, well-informed Christian. Leap forward. Newton was a theologian, wrote extensively on theology, very devout Christian. Leap forward. Darwin could not reconcile the notion of a compassionate God with what he saw of nature. It just I think he just couldn't imagine. The bestiality, the savagery, the immense suffering and so forth in the animal kingdom and of course including human beings. And he started out as a Christian and then just couldn't just couldn't believe it anymore. So he disengaged from the Abrahamic religion, created a big brouhaha, big big debate and so forth. That was the first big schism. Galileo, that was a tweak. They just put. They told him to stay in his room, brethren. They called. You're grounded. That's not exactly severe. And no TV for a month. <laughs> no, he just stayed home and he had all. He wrote. He continued writing and having friends over and so forth. Big deal. That's not exactly savage. But when it got to Darwin, that created a real a problem, because what the Genesis account doesn't say is God took a chimpanzee and breathed a very large frontal cortex into it. He didn't say that. God, the chimpanzees were always chimpanzees, right? And the baboons and the apes and so forth and so on. They, were, they just remained as they were. And God started from scratch. I mean, literally scratch, dust, you know, floor sweepings. And then breathed life in it. And that's where we came from, not apes, right? So Darwin said, uh-uh, the evidence is contrary, you know. But something interesting about Darwin, he was very, very candid. He seemed like a very admirable man. And... He acknowledged very candidly, look, I've got a theory with enormous explanatory power to explain evolution over millions and millions of years, contrary to any interpretation of the biblical account, any, any kind of, that holds closely to it. But as for the origins of life, the first life, he said, I have no theory. I have no theory. And he acknowledged, as I recall, God might have done that. God had no, no role in evolution, natural selection, and so forth. But, okay, maybe we need God to start the whole thing. I don't think he ever referred to himself as an atheist. He just said, natural selection is just that. It's not teleological, it's not God-driven, and so forth. It's, you know, like that. But then we leap forward to James Clerk Maxwell. He was, the, he was the Newton of electromagnetism. He was a very devout Christian. We leap forward to Einstein. He was a secular Jew, but he believed in the God of Spinoza, who was also a secular Jew. He believed in deism, that there was a higher intelligence. When he said, God doesn't play dice, very famously, to Niels Bohr, he wasn't joking. There's a higher intelligence here that created the entire universe. It's deism. Doesn't answer prayers, not involved, not a person, but there had to be some higher intelligence creating all of this. And Einstein was also a metaphysical realist. It's out there. He's very biblical. 
just that God doesn't run things. But he was happy for God to start it. A higher intelligence. Spinoza's God. You can check it out. And he, he spoke very, very respectfully of religion. He said all, all scientists, all great scientists are deeply religious people. Not necessarily following an institutional church, but they have that drive. He said that. He was not anti-religious at all. Then we spring forward in this same trajectory to a man I didn't know much about until today. His name is Georges, I'm going to do the whole thing, Georges-Henri-Joseph-Edouard Lemaitre. How's that? French people, she's oh, another American trying to pronounce French. Okay, Georges Lemaitre, I think that's okay. He's interesting. He, he lived from 1894 to 1966, so recent. He was a Belgian priest, a Roman Catholic priest, an astronomer, and a professor of physics at the Catholic University of Leuven. Is that how you pronounce it? In Belgium. In Leuven, yeah. That's an interesting combination, right? I didn't mention that Mendel, Gregor Mendel, started genetics. He was a Roman Catholic monk. So, all of the history of science since, from Copernicus to Lemaitre is basically Judeo-Christian science. It's rooted in a worldview where God started it. And then you can tweak it as you like, but God started it. It was already there. It's absolutely real. And scientists are representing or approximating a God's eye view. And so this fellow, Georges Lemaitre, he was very interesting. He was the one, I think it was about 1960, he proposed the theory of the expansion of the universe. That was his idea. And he also proposed what became, what became known as the Big Bang Theory of the origin of the universe. That fits in very neatly with the, origin, with the biblical account. That there was a void and then God started the whole thing a long time ago, you know, 7,000 years ago. That's a long time for most people. Just, well, just, you know, stretch it out a bit. 7,000 years, 13.8 billion, you know, it was a few years among friends. But it's the same principle. It's the same principle. It's still very Abrahamic. And who started the Big Bang? Ask him. I think we know. He's a Roman Catholic priest. He's not going to become a heretic. He never got excommunicated. He's orthodox. He's just tweaking the Genesis account into the 20th century. And so he, he was the originator of the Big Bang Theory, which is now just kind of like everybody knows that's true. And he called this Big Bang Theory, he called it the hypothesis of the primeval atom, or the cosmic egg. Cosmic egg. So I guess God laid an egg. <laughs> not, quite, not quite sure how that thing. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? I don't, I don't know. But there it is. So my point here is that if you're Christian, and the vast majority of them right through the 20th century were Christian, some Jews, well, pretty much Christian, not many Jews, some Jews, but they tend to be secular, like Einstein. The utter conviction, the unquestioned belief that is the core of their worldview, from Copernicus right through Lemaitre, from one Christian priest, Roman Catholic priest, to another Roman Catholic priest, and a whole bunch of theologians in between, is that God created this universe, God said it was good, God created man in his image, God imbued the universe with meaning, mysterious are the ways of the Lord, there must be a higher meaning, you don't know what's in the mind of God, but this is going to turn out well, and the universe is meaningful because God made it meaningful. And human beings are in God's image and we have divine souls, and so it's okay. And moreover, God is the source of eudaimonia, 
and there's a path, a path of salvation, of righteousness, and what comes after this life. If you're, if you're you know, a faithful, virtuous person, you have faith, it turns out well. So that's very livable. You've got eudaimonia, you've got hedonia, you've got some really cool science. But now what happens if you take God out of that equation? What if you just chuck out God? And that's everything God does. I mean, image, man created an image of God, throw it out. That there's a compassionate field that permeates the whole world, throw it out. That there's meaning in the universe, well, there's no God, then there's no meaning in the universe. What happens if you just throw that at? What happens if you take this, basically a new denomination of Judeo-Christianity called modern science, and then you gut it? You take out the divine, you take out spirit, you take out the sacred, you take it all out, you take out subjectivity, all subjectivity, and you're left only with a world of services, total objectivity. What do you have then when you have Judeo-Christian science evolving over 400 years, but you pluck out its heart? God, the soul, the divine, blessings, salvation, miracles, divine intervention, the whole thing. You just pluck it all out. What happens? What do you get? Well, here's what you get. Stephen Hawking said this in 19, wrote it in 19, 1990. He said, said it, and I have the source here in 1995. Here's Stephen Hawking. What's this Judeo-Christian vision that's evolved over 400 years through science look like when you pluck God out and, and pluck out the human soul? So that, as Stephen Hawking says, the mind is simply, you know, the program of the brain. Destroy the brain. There's no, there's no mind. You're finished. You're terminated. So what's it look like? Here's what he says, and I quote him verbatim. The human race is just, I have to say this slowly, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a hundred billion galaxies we are so insignificant that I can't believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. That would be like saying that you would disappear if I closed my eyes. So, God breathed the breath of life into dust. Take out God, and you've got chemical scum. Because that's what dust is, with no prana, with no consciousness, no Buddha nature. And we are the stuff of stardust. We are stardust. We are chemical scum. If you're a materialist, that's it. So, you know, when you fall in love and you have a big romance, you should address, well, you know, I really, you know, for particle, for chemical scum, I really, really like you. <laughs> Do you like me too? <laughs> Is that what you felt? You know? <laughs> here's, the, here's the chemical scum that just captures my heart. You know? It does take the romance out of the universe. You know, I mean, tall, tall short, fat, skinny chemical scum, but when you're all said and done, it's chemical scum. So that's for us. We're chemical scum, an accidental byproduct of complex amino acids and so forth and so on. But how about the universe at large? Now again, take out the, the divine. Steven Weinberg, a Nobel laureate in physics and astronomy, he writes very succinctly, and this has been quoted many times, the more the, more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. This whole Judeo-Christian vision, starting with Copernicus and culminating, let's say, in Lemaitre, with no God, it's just, just pointless. It's meaningless. And the more thoroughly you understand it, the more meaningless it appears. A big, mindless machine grinding on and on, going nowhere, except for just maybe just whimpering out and going cold. But then how about life on our planet? And so Darwin's story, okay, however it started, there's been evolution for 13.5 billion years, something like that. So 
what's the nature of it? What's that feel like? What's happening with evolution from single-celled organisms to us? Stephen Jay Gould is an eminent, very, he's, he's the late Stephen Jay Gould, eminent, very distinguished evolutionary biologist, speaks for the mainstream, and he writes, and I quote, evolution is purposeless, non-progressive, and materialistic. So that's the world we're left with. That is the world of scientific materialism. And people defend it as if it's a wish-fulfilling jewel. You know? The allegiance to this vision is amazing. Okay? Now this morning I had a treat. I kind of bumped into Thomas Hertog. Not in person, of course. But remember, he was the one that co-authored that paper by Stephen Hawking, that there is no objective, definitive, single story of the universe that actually happened. But all possibilities of histories of the universe are coexistent, simultaneously present in a superposition state. And the history that rises up to meet you, which is true relative to your questions and system of measurement, arises out of that when you make a measurement. But there is no real history of what actually happened. No one story. No one story. So this is Thomas Hertog. Well, I checked him out. He just got curious. Well, who is he? Because I know everybody knows who Stephen Hawking is, but who's this Thomas Hertog dude? Well, it turns out he's, a, he's, not, that, he's not very old, um, middle-aged man. He's a Belgian theoretical physicist, and he teaches right there at that same university in Belgium that uh, Lemaitre was, University of uh, Leuven. Yeah, Leuven. So I watched a 16-minute YouTube account. It was a TEDx talk that he gave this morning. And I was just about to stop watching because it was the same old I'd heard it so many times. And then he made one comment. He said, I've got to write that down. And they made it, oh, I've got to write that down. And so he really perked my interest about halfway through. Listen up. <laughs> he is a close colleague, and he also he did research. He, he taught for a while and did research at UC Santa Barbara, my hometown, as well as CERN. So he's very distinguished, worldwide reputation. Very solid physicist, no question about that. Here's what I wrote down from his TEDx talk this morning. I think you'll enjoy it. Whether or not we exist seems, in the Big Bang Theory, so just assume that starts with the Copernicus. It's a, it's a smooth trajectory. Copernicus to Lemaitre, theologian to theologian, with lots of theologians in between. Whether or not we exist, we, human beings, exist, seems, in the Big Bang Theory, completely irrelevant. I mean, the first six days was done deal. Whether God breathes, breathes life into a bit of dust, I mean, the rest of the universe won't care all the stars and planets and so forth, our planet, all the other life forms, they, would they even notice if we never showed up? No environmental degradation and so forth. So we're just irrelevant. Whether or not we exist, completely irrelevant to all other species, to the planet and to the entire universe, completely, absolutely irrelevant. But there's one catch. The Big Bang Theory does not explain how the universe came into existence. That is, it said it happened, but if you have a theory about something, you should be able to explain how did it happen? What were the causes? Just like mind. If mind exists, then what did we do? Where did it come from? Where is it located? Where does it go? Then you have a theory of mind. But if you have no idea where it came from, then you have at best an incomplete theory. Or you have no scientific theory at all. So he's saying, well, we have a, a, a theory about the Big Bang, but no theory, I mean, not a clue what caused the Big Bang. The Metro would probably almost certainly say God, of course. But if you don't believe in God, then you just don't even have a scientific theory that's in any way complete. That's for the universe. 
Secondly, there is no scientific theory for the origins of life. Lots of theories, they all mutually contradict, none of them are testable. So you may as well have none rather than many that all contradict each other and are not testable. So that is none. And then origins of consciousness in the, in the course of evolution or in the course of the development of a human fetus, no theory. So these are the three big questions, right? The origin of the universe, origins of life, origins of consciousness, and, conscious, and, and modern science to this day is sitting with his mouth hanging open, just having no answers for any of those three questions. This is clearly incomplete science. Three big questions. There's just no answer, no, not even a scientific theory, let alone one that's testable, let alone one that's confirmed. And yet, and that's fine, ignorance is fine, I'm comfortable with ignorance. But then to pretend as if there's no ignorance. No, we have a complete story, the Big Bang that tells it all. No, we have a complete story, we just haven't figured out the details, but life emerges from inorganic, comical, you know, dust. And conscious knowledge is sufficiently complex interaction of neurons. This is a charade, because you're pretending to know something you don't know. That's not, that's not bad science, that's pseudoscience. If you have no theory at all, and then you're pretending as if you not only have a theory, but you've already found the truth. Now that's fraudulent. As Gomer Pyle used to say, shime, shime, shime. <laughs> this gets interesting, though. This, the Big Bang theory does not explain how the universe came into existence. This created somewhat of a crisis in cosmology because not only did the Big Bang remain outside the realm of science, furthermore, it seems that it was precisely mysteriously designed, so to speak, to create just the universe in which life could emerge. And obviously I didn't transcribe, transcribe here on my cell phone a 16-minute 16, 16 talk, but he said, you know, the laws of physics... The, the, the constants and so forth of our universe, they had to be very, very precise. And there are a lot of them, very precise, to allow for life as we know it to emerge. If in any one of these, inverse square law of gravity, if it were something else, life as we know it wouldn't be there. The nature of carbon, if it weren't as it, it we wouldn't be here. If it weren't for the gravitational constant, we wouldn't be here. The, 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 the temperature at which water freezes, if that were very different, we wouldn't be here. There's a lot of variables like that. It had to be just so. And if all of those were not lined up, then there just wouldn't be any life in the universe that we know of. So how did that happen? Why is this universe life-friendly, at least the little corner of it that we know about it? There were many, many variables that had to be just so. As if, he says, and this is a physicist, of course, it's precisely, mysteriously designed, so to speak, to create just the universe in which life could emerge. Then he goes on to speak of string theory. I don't understand it very well, I won't pretend to, but it has multiple dimensions, 11 dimensions. And he says the shape of, and there are six hidden dimensions. So he's, he clearly knows what he's talking about. I don't, but he does, so I just quote him. The shape of the six hidden dimensions, the ones above that are evident. Three dimensions of physicals, physical space, and then, the, and then the dimension of time, space-time, four. So there's four. We have six that are hidden. Hidden. The shape of the six hidden dimensions in string theory determines the laws of physics in the visible dimension. Now that's the shape of hidden dimensions determines the laws of physics in the visible dimension. This is re not the identical to, but reminiscent of this theory of Carl Jung and 
of Wolfgang Pauli. There's a hidden dimension, and the law is there, these, archetype, these archetypes and so forth. And then if we go back to Pythagoras, maybe the mathematical laws that are there in the realm of pure form, because the mathematics is there, because the archetypes are there, then when it manifests in its cruder, grosser manifestation of what we call the desire realm or the physical universe, well, the laws here are predetermined because of the laws in this underlying hidden dimension of form realm or unus mundus. So it's not the same, but there's definitely a, a very similar theme here. The shape of the six hidden dimensions in string theory determines the laws of physics in the visible dimension. So he caught my attention at this point. But the hidden dimensions can have all sorts of shapes, which leads to an ensemble of universes, each containing different laws of physics. We can describe the physics of the Big Bang. It's not going to predict a unique world. So this is now, it was Hertog and Hawking, of course, that wrote that there's not one history of the universe. There are many, depending on the questions you're posing, the system of measurement you're using, and that history will rise, and it will be accurate, sophisticated, rigorous, and scientific relative to the questions you're asking and the measurements you're making. But you can ask different questions and use different systems of measurement, and they have another story, and those stories don't have to be compatible. The laws of physics can be different from one to the other. Right. He's not now got my interest. It leads to a reality, this now, this vision here, this string theory, this leads to a reality, a worldview which is completely different from what we have in Lemaitre's cosmology. This is still Abrahamic. Big Bang, God, one God created the one Big Bang for one real universe that's absolutely out there, and we scientists are exploring it as metaphysical realists. Right? And if you throw out God, then you're a scientific materialist living in an incredibly bleak universe and leading a pointless life. String theory gives you a multiverse, an ensemble of, uni of universes with, a diff with different laws of physics which coexist in the theory simultaneously and which have certain relative probabilities determined by the laws of physics. And then he gives an analogy. I like this. You can think of that quantum reality a bit like a tree. The branches represent all possible universes. So we can see he really was that co-author with Stephen Hawking. Possible universes right now, possible universes. Depending on the questions you pose, the system of measurement you use, right now possible, multiple ones, rising from a superposition state on the basis of your observations, but also for the whole past, multiple possible histories of different universes, coexisting simultaneously and mutually incompatible because they're operating under different laws of physics. Right? And all of this relative. So this is now what I called earlier general theory of ontological relativity. It's not just desire realm and form realm. It's everything. Everything. Whether you live in the form realm, the formless realm, whether you live as a preta, an animal, a hell being, or a deva, you're making measurements and the reality that rises to you is relative to your observations. That's not just desire realm, form realm, and archetypes manifesting here. It's everywhere. Which gives rise to the Madhyamaka constant, the invariable across all cognitive frames of reference. Madhyamaka, Kalachakra system says this explicitly, there is no one definitive description of the universe anywhere. Not in Abhidhamma, not in Dzogchen, not in Kalachakra, not in Hinduism or Christianity, not in modern science, 
not in string theory, not in quantum theory. There is no one definitive, actually, truly right account of an objective universe out there because there is no objective universe out there existing in and of itself. So there's no one right story. And whether it's Buddhist or atheistic, there's still no one right story. It's all, and some stories are false. I mean, people just make up stuff. That's not a true story, just making up stuff. So, you can think of that quantum reality a bit like a tree. The branches represent all possible universes, and these are not just stories, make-believe, fantasies. These are, these are universes that are based upon questions, rigorous measurements, sound inference, and proceeding. So, th- this is not just storytelling. Modern science, the 13.8 billion years, that's not just a story, some fiction somebody dreamed up. There's a lot of very, very good science. Precise measurements, brilliant intellect, fantastic mathematics. So we should not denigrate this. It's just a story somebody made up. The branches represent all possible universes and our observations. And he introducts here, we are part of, we are part of the universe. So we are part of that tree. Suddenly we don't look like chemical scum anymore. And suddenly it doesn't look like our existence is totally irrelevant. Because we're part of the tree. We're bringing human existence back into nature rather than leaving it out, which was crazy. Because it's, creating, it's, it's describing a universe that doesn't exist, one that's empty of mind. I've mentioned that before. The branches represent all possible universes and our observations. We're part of the universe, so we're part of that tree. And our observations select certain branches and thereby give meaning or give reality to our past in a quantum world. So rather than someone else, some divine being out there, some inherently truly existent being out there, creating the whole thing and then adding us as a glorious footnote, he said, we, we, our observations select certain branches. We select this universe, that universe and thereby give meaning, so we're not relying on God to give meaning to the universe, we give meaning to the universe by our questions, by our measurements, what we do with the information we have, and we thereby give meaning or give reality to our past, not just to the present, to our past in a quantum world. Quantum theory indicates that we may not be mere chemical scum. So you can fall in love with each other all over again. You're not, I, I love you even more. You're not chemical scum. Jeffrey, I love you. It's much nicer. The wedding ceremony is much nicer. Than, and now I'll bring this chemical scum. With this chemical scum, do you agree to unite and create more chemical scum? Not a very nice story. No poetry there. Quantum theory indicates we may not be mere chemical scum. Life and the cosmos are, in the quantum theory, a synthesis Rather than life just being enacted on a byproduct and we are totally irrelevant, life and the cosmos, cosmos, life and the cosmos are in in the quantum theory a synthesis, and our observations now give, in fact, reality to its earliest days. So, if you'd like to listen to a 16 minute talk that starts out boring and gets really, really interesting, you can find it on YouTube, TEDx. So that's how I started my day. And now we finally come back to Buddhism. Stroking the moon, <laughs> caressing the sun. And there's background information here. We've got to go to background because it's, it's much worse than that. If you think that was a blip, that was an editorial error, 
San is a lot, were, uh, the word San is a lot like the word dog, and it actually meant stroking a dog. It would be nice to do that, you know, scholars like to do that. And the moon, well, that's actually look like cat. So all it says, you can stroke a cat and a dog. And now we're finished, you know. <laughs> it would be really nice to do that, but there's no truth to that at all. But, so, but this is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the problem is much deeper than a line item in the Dikandakaya or the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. You want to see how deep this really is? How deep the problem goes? Here we go. The Buddha's description of the universe appears to be fundamentally incompatible with that of modern physics and astronomy. And I'm going right back to the, only the Pali Canon here. For example, in the Anguttara Nikaya, and all of this is sourced, you can find every, every source here. In the Anguttara Nikaya, one of, one of the most definitive, that whole body of definitive sutras, absolutely, you know, clearly the Buddha did teach this stuff. The Buddha gives a description of the universe in which there is no mention that the moon is particular to planet Earth and that other planets have their own moons. There's no mention of that at all. It assumes that each world system, or loka, each world system, which may be equivalent to a planet inhabited by sentient beings, has one sun and one moon. It assumes that every planet has one sun and one moon. That's just, that's no way that's compatible with modern physics. Right? So, just for starters, it gets much worse. Each world system house has Mount Sinaru. Okay? Mount Maru is back. <laughs> and every one of them, not just ours, we don't have a weirdo planet, all the planets have Mount Maru. Oh, you thought stroke, now that stroking the sun and moon looks like child's play. Oh, we can, I think we can work with that. But Mount Meru? Uh-oh. Each world system has Mount Sinaru at its center, surrounded by the same four continents, Oh, yikes. Described by the Buddha in the 5th century before the Common Era. He's saying all these world systems have a Mount Sinaru, a sun and a moon, and four continents. What do we do? This is getting terrible here. (laughs) Buddhist tradition and modern astronomy both present the universe as vast in time and space, yeah, with countless planets, yeah, or world systems capable of supporting living conscious organisms. But the differences between the detailed descriptions of planets are obvious. So we've got a big problem there. Where's Mount Meru? You know, we've crowned Mount Everest, K2. Who's ever climbed Mount Everest? How high was it? Where was it? Which satellite photo picked it up? Oh, it gets worse. A second area of incongruity between Buddhism and science has to do with the causes of natural phenomena. To take just one example in the Samyutta Nikaya, again, Pali Canon, one finds the question asked, why does the weather become warm? This was before global warming, so don't ask that. <laughs> why does the weather become warm? Why does it become cold? Why are there storms? Why does it become windy? Why does it rain? And the Buddha answers each of these phenomena, that each of these phenomena are caused by a particular class of devas. And I give the source. This answer could hardly be more different than the explanations presented by modern <laughs> meteorology. I'd love to see that in the evening news. <laughs> and we have these devas coming in from the west, and they're blowing up a storm. <laughs> but the nuggets on the weas are really retaliating, and they're creating a lot of moisture from the ocean. <laughs> I would love to see the Buddhist network, you know. That's their version of the weather, but here's our version. I would find the latter much more interesting myself. <laughs> Uh, it gets worse. 
if you're not feeling really, if you're going to devout Buddhist, it gets much worse. Are you ready? We have two areas, right? The first one's Mount Meru and that whole business. The second one is natural causes. Devas are kind of really doing a lot. And the third one, this gets really bad. A third area of incompatibility between Buddhist and scientific descriptions of the physical world has to do with history of our world and other worlds as explained in discourses attributed to the Buddha. It's again Pali Canon. The early canonical texts speak of past Buddhas, bearing in mind in the cycle of Buddhas, Buddha Shakyamuni is the fourth, right? So what about the first three? Speak of past Buddhas, three of whom are said to have lived in northern India, in the very same region where Gautama lived and taught, and their lifespans were remarkably long. <laughs> okay. Kakusanda, the first of the, in the cycle of thousand, Kakusanda uh, had a lifespan of 40,000 years. And then Konagamana, Kogamana, uh, 30,000 years. He was the second in the cycle, 30,000. Kasapa, the one just before the Buddha, 20,000 years. And our Buddha, Gotama, who volunteered to appear in our world at a time of spiritual degeneration, lived for only 80 years. For the clearest statement of this, see the Diganakaya, and I give the exact source. In stark contrast to all such Buddhist accounts, contemporary archaeology, anthropology, paleontology, let alone evolutionary biology and geology and so forth, give us a remarkably precise and accurate account of the history of humankind and human civilizations. And one conclusion we can draw from from their investigations with near certainty is that that there were never any advanced Buddhist civilizations in India preceding Gautama Buddha. There is certainly no scientific basis to support the hypothesis that humans in earlier civilizations had lifespans of up to 40,000 years. And that's Pali Canon. The Theravadans really, they don't interpret it much. And for a very good reason, there's not much in the way of hermeneutics in Theravada Buddhism. What the Buddha said he meant, it's kind of like creationists. I mean, God said what he meant. He chose his prophets to give, you know, be good scribes, write down what he wanted them to say. God said what he meant. He meant what he said, and that's what he said. It's called the Bible. This is called the Pali Canon. And the Buddha himself declared in the Pali Canon, whatever the Tathagata says is just so and not otherwise. And whatever is seen, heard, sensed, and cognized, you've heard that one before, right? By Hyasutta. Whatever is seen, heard, sensed, and cognized, all that I know, all that I have, I have directly known, this means that the Buddha is saying, look, I'm reporting. If I speak of Mount Meru, that's because I've seen it. If I'm reporting on four continents, I'm reporting on the lifespans of earlier Buddha, that's because I've seen it. It's not inference. It's not conjecture. I'm not relying on some authority. I saw it. I'm telling you what I saw. And I'm seeing worlds all over the place, locas with Mount Meru and four continents. That's what I'm seeing. This means that when he made such statements about past Buddhas and their lifetimes, he was doing so on the basis of direct experience, his own direct experience in advanced states of meditative consciousness. So if we are following and taking as the one story that has any credibility, that's not just scientific or religious fable, superstition, hocus-pocus, mumbo-jumbo, claptrap, 
if we took as the one story, the story from, from Copernicus to Lemaitre, the Judeo-Christian story, nuanced and you know, accentuated with modern science and fantastic technology and mathematics of modern science, then you'd look at that and you'd have to say, well, okay, either, moder- either we just have to turn our back on that whole trajectory of astronomy from Copernicus to Lemaitre and say it's all wrong, and the Buddha said exactly what he meant, and that means also evolutionary biology and paleontology, archaeology, so it's all wrong, because there were Buddhas millions of years ago in India who had lifespans of 40,000 years, 30,000, 20,000, and that's millions of years. So I think, frankly, I'm just now speaking, all, I've, all that I just read, I mean, that's just true. As I'm saying, not true of reality, it is true of the Pali Canon. And if you embrace the Pali Canon, as this is the, what the Buddhists taught, which is widely accepted in Buddhist communities all over the world, then it makes, I think, one very... If I were a Theravada Buddhist, I'd be feeling very uncomfortable. Because Theravada Buddhism, on the whole, and I've spoken world, with world, world, world experts on this, it embraces metaphysical realism. That the five skandhas are real, the universe is real, it's out there, it's, you know, it's empty of self, it's impermanent, it's dukkha, it's not self, but it's real. The five skandhas are real, they're just empty of a self. Right? And nirvana is real. It's all real. And the Buddha saw what was real and he reported. But if you're a metaphysical realist and embracing everything the Buddha just said as being true, and bear in mind one of the three facets of metaphysical realism is there's one incorrect description. Remember it? From Hilary Putnam? There's one correct description of that one objectively real universe out there. So you can't have incompatible. There can only be one. If you have nuances, it has to be compatible with the one true story. You can't have totally different stories that completely contradict each other and have them both true. You can't have that. And so I believe the Theravadans in the 21st century are in a bind. If they're still adhering to metaphysical realism, they have to turn their back on the whole of evolutionary biology, geology, paleontology, astronomy, and physics, and say, bah humbug, and start some Amish Buddhist communities, you know, and just turn away from, the, from all of science for the last 400 years. And there are those who do. That wasn't hard to do 100 years ago. That was very easy 70 years ago in Tibet. They didn't know anything about us. They didn't care. But now that the Tibetans and the Thais and the Chinese and the Indians and the Sri Lankans and so forth, all of them, have been exposed to modernity. If you're a metaphysical realist, you're in a really tough spot. Because either then you say, well, look, as it stated there, the scientific evidence is, is enormously compelling. You know, I mean, it's brilliant work. But this mean, does this mean that the Buddha was delusional? Or that other problem makers, you know, vandals, got in there and added all this claptrap in the midst of the brilliant teachings of the Buddha? And we have to do an apologetic kind of thing that some modern secular Buddhists are very happy to do. They take the meat cleaver out and just chop out anything out of the Pali Canon that is incompatible with modern science. Because they're metaphysical realists. And most of them have hardly any training in science at all. So that's one way. Be a secular Buddhist. Just take a meat cleaver out. And they'll come to the Pali Canon and say, the Buddha never said this because that's not true. Whack! And whack. And, I, and then after you've dealt with Mount Meru and the earlier Buddhas, you just start keep keeping, you know, just keep on going like in a mad frenzy and whack out karma or whack out reincarnation or whack out the Four Noble Truths, whack out an enlightenment, and you, what you have is Buddhist-inspired psychotherapy. 
and then you call that secular Buddhism. No, that's completely whacked Buddhism. I mean, whacked as in a beef carcass that you chopped up in the hamburger. To call that a secular cow, it's not a secular cow, it's hamburger. It's not cow at all. You threw out all the vital organs. This is fat. And if you eat modern hamburger, it's included with pink slime. <laughs> That's a very special kind of hamburger. It sounds really yummy. So what to do? Well, let's pay attention to all of, all of that whole trajectory. Take seriously. And if, if I found some wacko, weirdo, fringe physicists who are coming up with these kooky ideas, and I'm trying to save Buddhism on, on the basis of that, say, oh, give us a break. But John Wheeler was not wacky, kooky, and... Anton Seininger and Paul Davies and Andre Linda and Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog. I'm not saying they're infallible. I'm not saying we need them to save Buddhism. But I'm saying these are really first-rate scientists. And they're telling us that that whole story of metaphysical realism, there being one, tru- one truth and that human beings are totally irrelevant, is false. Never been true. It's only one story. And it's a story that is true relative to us, and we are important, because we created the story. And it's based on our observations, and that universe came into existence because we invoked it. By our questions, which are physical questions about a physical universe, our measurements, which were physical measurements about a physical universe, surprise, surprise, we come out with a physical universe. If you add God, it's okay. Add, take out God. And you have this meaningless, purposeless, bleak, sterile universe in which we are irrelevant chemical scum. And that's what scientific materialism gives us today. So when Yang Rinpoche, after giving some Dzogchen teachings, incredibly brilliant, we basically finish with him. And then he's that back, and I paraphrase here. Amy will correct me if I say something wrong, because she's doing transcribing. He said, well, we've dealt with the important stuff, now let's just have some fun. Right? And then he took us on a tour. This great Vijayadara, who's demonstrated his, his cities on multiple occasions. He's a real deal. Realized Rikpa. My own teacher, Gyatran Bhushi, said he's a chief shamata, a chief vipassana. He realized Rikpa. He's the real deal. You know? So I'm just saying what I've heard, but I certainly believe what I've heard. So he said, so then he said well, and then he took us on a, t- a tour of Mount Meru and the four continents and then multiple world systems. And he also commented that Longchen Rabjamba, you know, he liked the Tsongkhaba for systematizing all of Dzogchen, that Longchenba himself had visited Mount Meru and was doing measurements. Right? Doing measurements. How big is it at base? How high is it? And so forth. And, going, and the four continents and the concentric rings of, of oceans and so forth. He was observing all of this and taking... He was like the Lewis and Clark expedition of Mount Meru. You know, he was exploring and, and drawing up what he saw. And he had as an escort, Saraswati. I thought that was awfully nice of her. <laughs> she was his tour guide. Right? Yeah, just speaking modern. Tour guide. Very nice. I'd love to have her as my pure guide. Because she's a musician as well. You get musically competent. <laughs> and so I asked him. So we're hearing, I've heard this story, but he gave it in real precise detail. Real precise. And how this is true of multiple world systems all over the, all over the universe. You know, as it said right there in the Diga Nikaya. I think it was, one of the Nikaya. That this is true of all these world systems. There's a sun, a moon, Mount Meru, four continents. That's the standard template. And then each one is populated by multiple types of sentient beings. In which case there are human beings all over the universe. 
not just here. No, human beings all over the place. So I asked Yangzhou Rinpoche, who's not speaking about this as like it's poetry or like it's allegory or let alone like it's superstition. And I said, I asked him, who sees this? Who sees this? I mean, the Buddha himself said he saw it. He said, I reported what I saw, and that's what he said he saw. And I said, what, do, what realization do you have to have to see this? And his answer was, remember? You remember? You remember? Jeez. The most important question. Shine, shine, shine. Claudio. First jhana. He said, first jhana. This is what you see if you're viewing from the form realm. Different set of questions. Different measurement system. Different reality that rises to meet you from that different set of questions and the different measurement system. Purely mental consciousness. But you're seeing form. It's called form realm because there are forms. In the form realm, there's the sun and the moon. In the form realm, he said, you can see Mount Meru. And you can see it's different strata. It starts in the desire realm, it goes up to the form realm, up to the realm of Indra. And beyond that, realm of Brahma, in, in, you know, up in Indra to the desire realm, the peak of the desire realm. Beyond that, above Mount Meru, goes the form realm. And you can see all of that, and all of these levels, all these stages. And you can see all of the four continents, and you can see all of this. But that's what you see from the perspective of the form realm. The Buddha never said, oh, by the way, if you hop in a, in a, in a boat you know, from Goa and have, head west, you'll bump into the northern continent. He never said that. Kamachamera Rinpoche never said, if you hop in a spaceship and travel 93 million miles, you can reach out and touch the sun. He never said that. This is from the form realm. This is the sun and the moon as they appear to you from the form realm. The four continents, the Mount Meru, from the form realm. And apparently, Nagarjuna witnessed this as well. Nagarjuna, I think, went to the northern continent, and so forth and so on. Descriptions are just totally different than anything we have from our you know, satellite photos and so forth and so on. If this is just make-believe, if somebody has made up a story and then said, God said it, and I have no comment on the Genesis, that's not my business. So I just remain, you know, be quiet, I don't know. But if somebody were just to make up a story like a novel or science fiction, that doesn't count. Because it's just, it's just making up a story. No, this is, this is the Buddha who achieved all of the jhanas and viewed the multiple dimensions within the jhanas. And he said, this is what I saw. But he saw that from that perspective. Not by hopping in a boat, traveling west, bumping into the northern continent. Or traveling far north and then bumping into Mount Meru. He never said that you could see this from the desire realm or from an ordinary perspective of untrained consciousness. He never said you could develop, you could see it through a telescope, through, and so forth and so on. He never said there would be fossil remains, you know, of Buddhas living millions of years ago. He never said. He said, this is what you see from the form realm. And other people can also replicate the same measurement system by achieving jhana, and then you can check this out for yourself. That's what Yang Chanabuchi said, and this was like less than a year ago. Yeah, less than a year ago. You want to check out Mount Meru? Okay, achieve the first jhana. Then you can put this to the test of experience. So it's not a matter of belief system, or I have faith in the Buddha, therefore I'm going to see something, or I'm going to have a divine revelation, or Buddha's going to show me something. It's just 
shift your perspective, shift your system measurement, and you see a different reality. And there can be multiple, there can and there are multiple realities that coexist simultaneously, and they can be incompatible. Right? So from the forum realm, you can reach out and touch the sun and moon, no big deal. Because they're not 93 million miles away, or 237,000 miles away. They're not. Not from that perspective. So this is where metaphysical realism really strikes home like vehemently. Because for all of our education in the West, we're just told, hey, this is the sun, and it's, I think it's 93 million miles away, and this is what's happening there. And we have an enormous amount of data to back up. We're saying, this is not speculation. These solar flares, this, this, this is the temperature in the core. This is the temperature on the surface. These are the type of nuclear reactions taking place. It's made of helium. It's made of hydrogen. I mean, they've really nailed it. You know, my brother-in-law is an, an astrophysicist. And he worked on the sun, which leads to a story. And that is back in about 1973. You have no idea what's coming up. When I was living in Dharamsala, uh, I was about soon to become a monk, enter the Buddhist school dialectics. Um, but I moved out of the Dalai Lama's doctor's home and moved into the Tibetan Medical Center, just for a while before I became a monk and moved into the monastery. And my teacher, for about a year, was one of the two chief astronomer-astrologers for the Tibetan Astro-Medical Center. They had two, and they would write up the ephemeris for each year enormous amount of arithmetic that went into it, and describing each day, it's an ephemeris, each day the positions of the, the planets and so forth and so on, great, great detail. Um, and of course, it's, it's rooted in the notion that the Earth in the center and the sun and moon go round, of course. That's the Abhidhamma vision, that's what it looks like from the form realm. You know, the laws of physics are different in the form realm. People can fly. And they may be able to manifest that by using the nimittas in the desire realm. But what's it like there? Different set of law of physics, that's for sure. So my brother, my brother-in-law was working on his PhD in 1973, I think it was, at UCLA in, in solar physics, astrophysics. And he wrote to me, my sister wrote to me, that they're heading off to the East Coast, it was Connecticut, because there's going to be, you can check the date, but it had to be right around 1973. They wrote to me and uh, said, well, we're, uh, my sister and her husband were heading off to the East Coast because a full solar eclipse was, was predicted, and of course with tremendous precision. They don't know until the second when it's going to start. Um, and my brother-in-law went out there to observe as a scientist. It's a, it's a nice opportunity to observe a full solar eclipse. So I just mentioned that to my teacher. He, was my, he wasn't teaching me astronomy much or astrology. He was teaching me language. So I taught him English. He taught me, he taught me Tibetan. We had a buddy system. So I just mentioned to him that on such and such a date, my brother-in-law, a solar physicist, was going to be observing a full solar eclipse. Well, my language teacher was a Tibetan astronomer, astrologer. No telescopes, but they, you know, like medieval astrologers. Um, they had very good mathematics, and they could predict. European medieval astronomers could predict solar and lunar eclipses to the day. They were good. And so they had no telescopes. That's really not bad at all. And so it was analogous to that. Not the same, but analogous. Well, it is true statement. It turned out to be true that these, they would spend all year, he and a colleague of his would work independently writing up the ephemeris for each year from year to year to year. They would do it independently because you can always make a mistake. They would then compare and if there are any discrepancies then they work it out and make, make sure that they had you know, the right one. 
And so he was, that was his full-time job all year, was just to do all, all these mathematical calculations about the relative movements of the sun, the sun and moon, the planets. And so when I told him that on such and such a date, my brother-in-law is going to be watching the solar eclipse, uh, he said, and so he checked his books and said, oh, that's interesting, we predicted that too. In our books, we also, we've also predicted a full solar eclipse. But he said, you won't see it from here. And of course, he's speaking in Dharamsala in India. He said, you won't see it from here. It won't be visible from where we are. When it actually occurs, uh, it'll be nighttime here, so we won't see it. But you'll see it <laughs> from the northern continent. From the northern continent. One of the four continents on the opposite side of India. India is the southern continent. The northern continent, you can, see, you can observe it from there. But we won't be able to see it. That was, I thought, was intriguing. So it would seem spatially, now that's just true, what I just showed you was a true story. No reason to make up a silly story like that, it was not true. But I found it interesting. And lo and behold, yeah, they, of course the solar eclipse took place. But I got, I got thinking about that. And uh, it seems quite, well, based on that, it seems quite plausible that in the spatial location of North America, in that space, that's coexistent. There's the northern continent as described in the Buddha Suttas. And if you want to read about it, it's very different from North America. With maybe it's like one point debatable, it said that the, in, in the Buddhist classical scriptures, it said, you remember, that the inhabitants of the northern continents are really egoless and have no sense of personal possession. And I kind of find <laughs> Americans like that, don't, don't you? No? Well, okay. I tried. No, it said they have yeah, no sense of personal possession. I've learned of one Indian Native American tribe. Apparently that was true of them. You know. But not of the European settlers, of which I'm a you know, descendant. Uh, but it occurred to me, maybe it's very clear that India is in the space of the southern continent, because it's called the southern continent. That is, the land of India is in the southern continent. It's not equivalent to, but... It's in, the, it's in the southern continent, that's for sure. Jambudvipa, southern continent. So we know where the southern continent is, where India is. And then the northern continent would have to be on the opposite side, and that would be where North America would be, in the space of North America. And then you'd have the eastern continent, that would be what, where Europe is, and then you'd have the western continent, Lemuria, or the Pacific Basin. Space. No real correspondence with even soil, even a continent, because a lot of it is just ocean. No, and no correspondence in the shape. The Buddha gives precise di- dimensions and depictions of the shape of each of these continents. You know, nothing would be remote, remotely like the shapes of the continents that we're all familiar with. But if that's the case, this is now speculation. It's about dinner time, so we run away. But southern continent here, northern continent here, North America over here, east continent, western continent, and then Mount Meru would be right in the center. It would be rising up above the axis, up above the North Pole, spatially in that region, where all of the four continents would be around about it. But of course, all of that invisible if you're looking from the desire room. But if you could look at the same places, having achieved jhana, and viewing it from the, view, from the form realm, then there's a hypothesis. But in short, in summing up, this account that, I, that I, I gave of the history and the, the influence of devas and the, you know, all of that, and the geography and all of that, uh, is absolutely incompatible with the Copernicus-Lemaitre trajectory 
all rooted in metaphysical realism. Something's wrong. Something's completely false. And it's either 400 years of magnificent science or the accounts of the Buddha, which he says are based upon his own observations. That's caught between a rock and a hard place. If you're a Theravadan Buddhist today, I think you've got a problem. I think you've got a real problem. And the ones that I know, they, they stop thinking about it. The ones that really have faith, really have, they really truly take refuge. And of course, there are many of them. I know at least one, he just, I just stop thinking about it. Because he's not ready to stop being a Theravada Buddhist, not ready to start questioning metaphysical realism which is saturates Theravada Buddhist interpretation of the Pali Canon. But we've seen that yin-yang symbol in the story of Vajira. Vajira, the chariot. Nagasena, Nagasena, the dot. Uh, Maybe it's not just person who's empty. Maybe all phenomena are empty and come into existence only by the power of conceptual designate. There's just a dot of Madhyamaka, a perfection of wisdom that expands into the full scale and the perfection of wisdom, the Heart Sutra, the Diamond Country Sutra, the Madhyamaka, and Dzogchen and Mahamudra. Right. But this is now no longer implausible. You can reach out and touch the sun and moon if you're in the form realm, viewing them from the form realm, if you've achieved jhana. You may be actually to see, you may be, you'll have a different history. It's not one true history. It's one of many. And if the questions you're posing, the system of measurement, is a mind superbly refined, dwelling in the form realm, that's the history you see. But that's not the true history. That's not a God's eye perspective. That's not the absolute perspective. No, that's just anyone who gets access to the form realm. He happened to be a Buddha. But others have witnessed this. And all you have to do is access to the form. And that's what you see from that perspective. They're incompatible totally. And on a final note, one thing cannot possibly be a wave and a particle. Basic, basic physics. You look at what are wave properties. They're extended out through space. They display wave characteristics, wave interference patterns, and so forth. There are waves, and then there are particles. And particles are totally different. They're not spread out over space. They do not display. They're just not waves at all. So it's like a giraffe and a tomato. You can be a giraffe or a tomato. You just can't be a giraffe tomato. <laughs> They call it wavicle, but you just can't be a wavicle. You cannot possibly be a particle and a wave. Not possible. Every scientist knows that. Any physicist knows that. But if you measure light using one type of apparatus, it's perfectly clear that photons do exist. Overwhelming evidence. And you know a lot about them. My mentor in physics, Arthur Zions, that was his whole field, quantum optics. He studied photons. That was his deal. There's enormous evidence there. But then, of course, the whole wave theory of light, that light consists of electromagnetic fields traveling through space at the speed of light. There's enormous evidence there. Use one system of measurement, and life is clearly, unequivocally, objectively, a wave, displaying all the properties of wave, interference patterns, and so forth. Use another system of measurement, life is unequivocally, definitely, objectively, particle. And one thing cannot be a particle and a wave. So then we can ask, if you're a metaphysical realist, well, that's all very well, but what is light when nobody's looking? What is light when you're not using any measurement system? What's light really, objectively, from God's perspective? And the answer is resounding silence. That is a meaningless question for which there is no meaningful answer that can in any way be corroborated or refuted. And that was, who wasn't it? Anton Seilinger. It's a meaningless question. It will take you nowhere. And Heisenberg says, do not attribute existence 
to that which is unknowable in principle. The nature of light, independent of any system measurement, is unknowable in principle, therefore no reason to call it existent. So what's the true history? What's really going on? Was it a big bang and all of that story? Or was it this story? What's really going on from nobody's perspective? And it's the same answer. The one invariant across all cognitive frame of reference is they're all empty of inherent nature. That story in the, in the Pali Canon, the story of Copernicus to Lemaitre, all empty of inherent nature. They do not exist out there. They arise in an illusory fashion relative to your system of measurement. And they may be true, objectively true. That's why Prasangika says, yes, there is an objective physical universe, but not just one. Which one is arising relative to your system? And you as an observer are empty. Your process of observing is empty, and that which you're observing is empty. All equally empty. So now you can be happy achieve jhana and if you feel like caressing the sun and the moon feel free okay oh now we can move on in the text <laughs> enjoy your day toodaloo <laughs>